This is Fearless Beauties, a podcast dedicated to developing voices of color in the beauty industry. We're talking to estheticians, skin specialists, and business owners to uncover best skin practices, tactical career tips, and ultimately, how we can create a better beauty industry together. I'm your host, Mary Nielsen. And I'm your other host, Taylor Phillips. This week on Fearless Beauties, we're chatting about the next chapter in the Fearless Beauties book, Indigenous Skin. Yes, and we're so excited to discuss the history behind Indigenous characteristics and what estheticians should know about treating Indigenous skin. Well, Taylor, let's jump into it. I think we should start with a bit of an intro into the history of North American Indigenous people. Human beings originated in Africa. All of us, no matter what our heritage, have some of that original African DNA in us. And anyway, about 15,000 years ago, a group of these human beings traveled north from Africa and then west across China, up through Siberia, and across the Bering Strait into North America. There are a lot of similarities to Asian skin because of that journey. So, Taylor, can you tell us a little bit about what defines indigenous in the United States? Sure. So indigenous peoples in the U.S. are mainly Native American people or Alaska Native people. So some facts I found worth mentioning from the International Work Group of Indigenous Affairs is that around 6.6 million people in the United States, or 2% of the total population, identify as indigenous, either alone or in combination with another ethnic identity. And around 2.5 million or 0.8% of the population identify as indigenous alone. And what I also found interesting is that 23% of these indigenous people live in villages, which I thought was really, really interesting. I think that's so important to mention because given the fact that they have received more than unfair treatment, which include diminishing tribal land rights, sovereignty, and input into land and resource issues, that has all multiplied under the Trump administration. It is so unacceptable and unfair, but the great thing is that 574 Native American tribal entities were recognized by the U.S. in January of 2020. And most of these have recognized national homelands. So recognition and respect for the indigenous culture is slowly happening, which is so amazing. And I think it's just also amazing how much history makes you realize how it wasn't that long ago that these terrible things happened. Yeah, I I agree. The research that I did for this unit was really disturbing. It reinforced the way history has been written and that no one teaches our government's intentional decisions to eliminate Native Americans. There were specific policies and programs that worked toward genocide. I know that's a really strong word, but looking at the evidence, it's true. Indigenous people had no immunities to the infectious diseases that European invaders carried. Millions of them died. And then the U.S. government didn't respect over 300 treaties that were made with these indigenous tribes, and they continued to move them from the land that they lived on for centuries. If they resisted in any way, they were killed. Then the government actually started operating boarding schools with the intent of eliminating these indigenous cultures. The motto was, kill the culture, but don't kill the Indian. 
The government had the authority to remove children from their families and move them to these boarding schools. In the boarding schools, the intent was just to destroy their identity. They weren't allowed to speak their native language. Their hair was cut. And hair is really considered a sacred part of a person in indigenous culture. The way that people styled their hair was almost a form of communication. People who were single or married, or if they were celebrating, or if they were mourning, they wore their hair in specific styles. But Native children were forced to wear their hair in European cuts, wear European clothing. And this miserable, horrible, awful program continued until 1973. Anyway, that was when a group of Indigenous people barricaded themselves in the Bureau of Indian Affairs office in Washington, D.C. to protest the government's poor management of those treaties that had been made with the different tribes that led to underfunding in housing, education, health, and all the other services that were promised to them. So, Taylor, what do you think listeners should know about how these atrocities have affected the psyche of Indigenous people today? Well, I think the fact that 1973 was less than 50 years ago is huge and puts into perspective how not so long ago Indigenous people were fighting for their rights and still are, like less than 50 years ago. I believe to all Indigenous people, this historical moment will have a long lasting effect on their mental well-being, especially those who are still alive today. And I'm sure emotionally there is resentment. The fact that they are provided unequal rights while living in America, the land of the free, is difficult for them and makes them want to protect their culture even more. Also, I found that compared to the total U.S. population, nearly twice as many Indigenous people in America live in poverty. And in 2013, Indigenous people were nearly twice as likely as Caucasians to be unemployed. So it's safe to say that this high rate of poverty can cause mental health issues. In fact, due to the high levels of poverty, many Indigenous people in America face economic barriers that prevent them from receiving treatment, whether that's mental treatment or physical treatment, such as little to no access to insurance, lack of awareness about mental health issues and services that are available to them. And if they are available, it's on the reservations where a majority of indigenous people do not reside. So lastly, indigenous people in America report experiencing serious psychological distress, 2.5 times more than the general population. And I think the long-term effects of discrimination, unfair treatment, and inadequate health services has led to a cycle of an unhealthy psyche. I agree. I think there's a lack of education on skin care because those oral traditions of passing on stories, history, health care, skin care, personal care information, that information was lost as the government made those efforts to just annihilate this race. And I think that Indigenous people really have had to struggle against cultural appropriation, disrespect shown to their culture and their language. So, Taylor, why don't you give us some examples of cultural appropriation and the effect it can have? Yeah, so cultural appropriation, it can be positive and negative. So the United States is a melting pot of cultures, so it is not uncommon to borrow or incorporate different cultures into our lives, such as adopting food or meals into our diet from a different heritage 
or wearing clothes and jewelry from other cultures. It can be seen as a sign of admiration and respect. But when a culture is mocked or adopted without the proper respect, that's negative cultural appropriation, such as dressing as an indigenous person or in blackface. In the Fearless Beauties book, you give an example of a Victoria's Secret runway model wearing an indigenous headdress down the runway in lingerie. So in indigenous culture, a headdress is worn for sacred events and it had to be earned. So Victoria's Secret showed blatant disrespect and insensitivity towards the indigenous culture. Although this may have been just a cute accessory to add to the runway, for indigenous people, this was just another instance of America mocking them and treating their culture less than. And it's extremely sad. Well, let's take a shift and look at some physical characteristics of indigenous people. One key physiological characteristic is epicanthic folds. So that's the around your eyelids. These folds are very similar to the epicanthic folds in Asian eyes. It kind of acts as a sun visor to protect from the harsh glare of the sun in the Mongolian desert and offers protection from harsh cold like in Siberia. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and neat how cultural history influences the skin. I thought it was really interesting that indigenous people also have a ledge on the back side of their incisor teeth. And so I've seen pictures of it where it's comparing indigenous teeth with northern European teeth. And it's really remarkable. Archaeologists have two reasons why maybe the teeth may have this kind of formation and evolution. Perhaps the teeth evolved because it was beneficial for softening animal hides that were used for clothing and shelter. And another reason that could be because new evidence points to a possible connection with breastfeeding and vitamin D. And the teeth formation could just be an unexplained anomaly that happened because of the breastfeeding and vitamin D evolution. So DNA evaluations with people today who have that ledge on the backside of their teeth, they also have mammary gland branching that brings a higher concentration of vitamin D into the breast milk. So that could be a way that prehistoric women were able to give their babies vitamin D. I think that is so neat because when I had my baby Lauren, doctors told me that the only vitamins she doesn't get from my breast milk is vitamin D. So I still give her vitamin D supplements till this day. So I think that's very interesting. I know. It was just fascinating to me and how they figure this stuff out. Well, indigenous people also have a pigmentation in the back of their eye on the retina, and they do have inherent vision problems. Some of the reasons for this are that original people had really acclaimed visual prowess. Their lifestyle of being hunter-gatherers required them to have really flexible vision. They could focus on something close and then very quickly shift to something far away. But within two generations, there was dramatic vision changes as the indigenous children were forced to read text, tiny black marks on a blank background. And then a sudden diet change from native foods to diets with refined sugar, grains, processed foods, just resulted in an enormous increase in diabetes, which also has vision problems, and glaucoma. See, Mary, I just love how much you can learn from history. It truly amazes me. All of these characteristics have historical significance, and I know that learning the history of the indigenous people can really help Estes a ton when treating their skin. 
Okay, Mary, so now that we've covered the history, let's chat about the common skin disorders that indigenous skin is prone to. Well, before we get into specific disorders, we need to talk a little bit more about diet. You know, I've been studying about the connection between skin health and nutrition. And for thousands of years, indigenous diets consisted of low glycemic, calorie-dense foods. But with the introduction of European cuisine that was filled with refined sugar and other high glycemic foods, an increase in diabetes and obesity resulted. Yeah, we've definitely talked about how the European diet has negatively affected the health of other cultures, whose diets are more focused on fruits and vegetables and all around natural goods. So that change to sugars, bigger serving sizes, etc., that can really bring a shock to their system. But what about alcoholism? Did that result as part of indigenous people changing their diet? No, that actually started thousands of years ago and relates to a higher incidence of thyroid disorders. It's believed that due to the indigenous people's use of tobacco, their plants would rob the soil of iodine. So iodine is essential to thyroid function. And so indigenous Americans lack that enzyme that's needed to convert alcohol in the bloodstream. It's really interesting how diets can be so influential to our overall health and evolution. But what other disorders should Estes watch out for when treating indigenous clients? Well, there's a skin condition that's unique to indigenous people called actinic prurigo. It's an abnormal reaction to sunlight that causes papular or nodular skin eruptions. It's thought to be some kind of autoimmune disorder that manifests itself in pre-puberty in indigenous girls, although not exclusively, but mostly girls. It often appears early in the spring. The days are becoming warmer, but it appears in sun-exposed areas of the skin. Symptoms include intensely itchy papulonodular lesions with erythema, predominantly on the bridge of the nose, the cheeks, and the lower lip, although these lesions can appear anywhere. Due to the intense itching, skin excoriation, scarring, and post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation can result. Then indigenous people also struggle with acne, most likely from the influence of European diets, and rosacea is also very common, although it's often misdiagnosed. Skin of color doesn't have that visible pink flushing that's common on white skin, and the symptoms are often more subtle like a warm feeling to the skin, acneic lesions that don't respond to acne treatment, and dry, darker patches of hyperpigmentation on the skin. A young woman who has papulopustular lesions coming in for treatment, the practitioner has to really dive in and discover, you know, is the skin condition actinic prurigo, is it acne, or is it rosacea? Yeah, I think that is when the knowledge of the indigenous culture and history really comes in handy. So Taylor, we've talked about the common disorders that Indigenous people often face. Should we chat about how SD should approach the initial consultation? Can you give us some insight about how to start building that trust? Absolutely. So the approach in the initial consultation, I feel, is the same with any consultation. Building comfortability and trust, asking questions that aren't on the intake form, and helping the client set realistic goals for their skin. 
But learning that your client is indigenous, you have to remember what diseases and disorders can affect their skin, their allergies, their diet, and daily activities, especially those that require them to be outside in the sun for long periods of time. I also think one of the most important things in a consultation with an indigenous client is to get their Fitzpatrick skin rating right. Well, absolutely. It can be really tough to tell, you know, just based on where they are today. You need to really ask your client about their heritage. The DNA that creates those darker skin tones is present even if your client presents with lighter colored skin. You need to really be sure that the Fitzpatrick skin typing has been done. You can't just make a visual assumption. I remember a student from a few years ago who had dark hair and this very light, creamy complexion. The class was in the unit on IPL or intense pulse light treatments, and she volunteered to be the class model. A good history and intake wasn't done, and she was overtreated. It was her arms, thank God, not her face because they looked like she had put them in a waffle iron for too long. In reviewing what went wrong, she talked about how she was part Native American. So she'd been treated as a Fitz 2, but she was actually a Fitz 4 or higher. And that's exactly how her skin responded. Jeez. So her DNA is what made her a Fitzpatrick 4 opposed to her outer skin complexion. And I think that's just so amazing. So Estes definitely need to always do a thorough intake because their client may not be what they look like. Another part of the consultation is recognizing cultural skin practices. For sure. I've read about incidents with the Plains Indian tribes. They practice the Sundance ceremony and tribes gather annually from all over for a large celebration. And it's really a time of reconnecting with nature and regrounding to the earth. And part of that ceremony involves a sacrifice. Oftentimes this means the skin on the chest or the shoulders or their back is pierced. And physicians have misdiagnosed the scars from this ceremony as cystic acne, and they've prescribed Accutane for their indigenous clients. So Taylor, how can an esthetician ask about cultural influences in a way that's respectful? Well, I think once you've learned your client's ethnicity and have gained a comfortable and somewhat trusting relationship in a consultation, it's okay to kind of school your client and say, you know, your cultural background can have a lot to do with your skin health and to understand you a little better so that we can reach some realistic skin goals. Would you mind telling me about some of your cultural influences? And while I'm saying that, I feel like I sound like a therapist, (laughs) but we've said many times how estheticians are skincare therapists. No, absolutely true. For that initial consultation, you're spending that time getting to know your client, understanding their lifestyle, their diet, their occupation. I would pay particular attention to medications and then kind of dial in on their thyroid function. You know, we've already mentioned it earlier, but they have a connection with tobacco. Indigenous people have used it in ceremonies and for medicinal purposes for thousands of years. And then in growing tobacco, tobacco rubs the soil of iodine, and iodine is needed for healthy thyroid function. So many Indigenous people have thyroid issues, including goiters. In fact, archaeologists found an artifact from 40 AD, a small carved figure with a distinct goiter. Yes, and I found that pretty interesting as well. I'm finding a lot of things interesting in this episode, but it just keeps reminding me of the significance of a culture's history 
and how it can affect generations. Yeah, we can't miss talking about the large number of herbal remedies that Indigenous people have used historically. Now these same ingredients are used in commercial skincare today. Yeah, I've loved learning about the natural healing properties in our episodes. Well, one of the most interesting ingredients is bearberry, also known as arbutin. It's a plant-based skin lightening product. It's replacing hydroquinone, now that HQ is being discontinued due to the carcinogenic properties. Arbutin is an ingredient in some chemical peels, and it's used for hyperpigmentation, and it's a really effective antioxidant. Another interesting plant is juniper. Juniper is used a lot in organic natural skincare lines to treat acne because it has antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, and detoxifying properties. It can help balance that hormonal acne breakout. Taylor, there's a few more skincare ingredients listed in the Fearless Beauties book, Are there any others that you really want to highlight? Well, aloe vera is a common one. It provides soothing relief to irritated skin and it heals burns. It's also antifungal and antimicrobial. And just like juniper, it has antibacterial and anti-inflammatory properties as well. I also read that aloe vera helps treat acne. Currently, which I find is funny, is that I'm using aloe vera right now I'm using aloe vera gel to wean Lauren off of breastfeeding. It's been an interesting ride. I just rub the gel on my nipple. And when she goes in, it's like the smell alone. (laughs) It makes her run away. So aloe vera gel also helps wean your babies off breastfeeding. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move into the treatment plan. What do estheticians need to consider when creating an Indigenous client's treatment plan? The treatment plan needs to look at the systemic health of your client. Indigenous people have one of the highest rates of diabetes in the United States. And diabetes has so many effects on the body as the metabolism of sugar and carbohydrates affects blood sugar levels, which in turn affects cellular activity, which then affects the release of androgen, which then stimulates sebum production. It's a domino effect. Indigenous people also have a high incidence of thyroid disease, and our thyroid influences so many body functions with its release of hormones. It affects cardiac function, digestion, muscle movements, bone development, brain function, and metabolism, all affected by our thyroid. A low-functioning thyroid is going to give your client dry, flaking skin. And then your client is also going to have the same characteristics of other people with skin of color, like high tool post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, larger sebaceous glands. So you have to figure all of that into your treatment plan. So Mary, all of this talk about thyroid, I wanted to mention, remember I told you I've been having some extremely itchy skin. So my doctor wanted me to get blood work done, which I got two days ago. And she mentioned that at times, itchy skin can mean thyroid issues. Now, I don't think that's what it is because it's not, my skin's not really flaky, but All this talk about thyroid makes me realize how important it is. (laughs) Anyway, what are your suggestions on the root of the treatment plan? It's so amazing how integrally connected our skin is with the rest of the functioning of our body. And when you have a system problem, you're going to get evidence of that on your skin. So anyway, you are going to want to take a very progressive approach with a series of treatments that gradually increase in aggressiveness that are going to condition the skin. 
You want to make sure that you're not overly using handheld devices like high-frequency and skin spatula. High-frequency electrodes can help oxygenate the skin, calming irritated skin, and provide some antibacterial support for treating acne. You're going to want to be very careful with harsher treatments like microdermabrasion that have exfoliation and vacuum, and that could be too aggressive for a client with rosacea or actinic perigo. I would also stay away from those intense pulse light treatments because of the concentration of melanocytes in the dermis, even if your client has lighter looking skin. You can always start with test pulses for laser treatments just to make sure your client's skin isn't going to have a negative reaction. Taylor, what kind of approach should they take for chemical peels? For indigenous clients, you should always start with an enzyme peel and slowly progress to more aggressive treatments. So for instance, a fruit enzyme like papaya, pineapple, and pumpkin promote cell renewal and are antibacterial. They are best for rosacea, dehydrated skin, and sensitive skin. So if your client can tolerate an enzyme peel, you can move to a lower percentage acid with a high pH. Visible peeling is not the goal. Skin shedding can indicate that the peel was too aggressive and could result in post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So build your client's skin strength by increasing the acid percentage or decreasing the pH. So Mary, the last topic is home skin care recommendations. Oh, home skin care is really a great opportunity to condition your client's skin before you even start professional treatments. You can add products to their home care regimen one at a time. So if they have any kind of irritation or inflammation, you can easily recognize which product is causing the problem then you can steadily add more potent ingredients as you become familiar with their skin's reaction and as their skin builds up a tolerance level. If you add a retinol product, just be aware they can be pretty irritating to your client's skin and they could get discouraged from using it. You're going to have to titrate it in really slowly. Yes, and like we've mentioned many times before, what the client does at home is 80% of where their results will come from. I think it's also important to mention the significance of SPF. As an SD, you may have to introduce sunscreen to your indigenous clients. They may have a cultural belief that they do not need sunscreen because they do not get skin cancer. But indigenous people die of melanoma at higher percentages than the national average. So please help your clients take SPF more seriously. So that's it for our 17th episode of Fearless Beauties. That's right, 17. I can hardly believe it. Time flies. Yes, Mary, time flies when you're having fun for sure. So here are a few of our key takeaways from this episode. Well, for me, although we're a show with a skincare focus, some of the takeaways from this episode have to do with social issues. I am disheartened by our country's history and the unimaginable decisions toward Indigenous people. Even today, Native people are struggling with higher levels of unemployment, poor health, and educational opportunities. When COVID required quarantining and public schools transitioned to an online educational model, Indigenous reservations struggled to educate its young people because they didn't have the ability to access the internet. Many, many people don't have computers in their homes. 
promises from the U.S. Department of the Interior and the Bureau of Indian Affairs has fallen short and they weren't provided computers or the online access that they were promised. I have a better understanding today of why Indigenous people are hesitant to get vaccinated for COVID, although statistically they have a higher incidence of infection. One out of every 475 Indigenous citizens die of COVID, compared to one out of every 825 white Americans. But we do have a celebration moment. The first Indigenous person, a woman, has been appointed to the Cabinet Secretary for the Department of the Interior, Deb Holland. Oh, I love that so much. So congratulations to Holland. That is an amazing accomplishment. Another key takeaway is to not let a client with Indigenous heritage fool you into thinking they're a fits too, if they have a lighter skin tone. Be conscientious with every consultation. Oh, yes, that is very important. So my key takeaways are, and I can't mention it enough, but SPF, Estes, let's normalize sunscreen in our Indigenous clients' lives so we can help break the awful cycle of melanoma. Lastly is the historical importance of Indigenous culture on not only their skin, but their mental health. I learned so much and it has amazed me to no end. To be an inclusive SD, you have to go above and beyond to learn your clients and learning about their culture's history is a big part of that. Thank you for listening to Fearless Beauties, a show dedicated to elevating voices of color in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Mary Nielsen. And I'm your other host, Taylor Phillip. Until next time, keep educating yourself, remember to stay open, and be fearless in the pursuit of creating a better, more inclusive world. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Special thanks to my co-host Taylor and our producers at Quill Inc.